Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and then verse 11. Verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is God's word. And this is a picture or a poem that describes a cycle of life that happens in our lives and throughout history. The seasons of life include both good times and bad times. Life is full of contrasts. We go through mountains, we go through valleys, we go through successes and we go through failures. We have wins and we have losses. We go through sunshine and we go through deserts. And the different times that we go through, the sorrows, the joys, the ups and downs of life, the mourning and the laughter, the funerals, the celebrations, are all there to stir up in us a reminder that we're part of something larger than us, that eternity has been placed on our hearts. And these signs or these seasons or times are just pointers that stir up our hearts that in all of mankind, within our DNA, there is something that always longs for something more. It's like a compass that always points north. We go south, we go east, we go west, but there's something in us that always wants to go north, something in us that always pulls us towards eternal things. That's an instinct that we have, a longing in us for eternity. And it's God's plan to make everything beautiful in its time, which means every step, every sorrow, every tear, every hurt, every joy, God will make beautiful in the end. And a lot of these things may not taste good as we experience them, but the bitter must come before the sweet. And you put it all together, and then you will have the life of a worshiper. But what I want us to notice is that until that time, there comes seasons where there's times to be sad, there are times to weep, there will come times in our lives we have no strength to lift ourselves up, times in our lives where we cannot pretend ourselves strong. And sadness will come into our lives in ways that we never could have imagined. You know, so many tears that may come out can only be washed away as they're drained. And it could be depression, it could be a loss of faith, it can be all these things, but there are going to always come times where we need to have the time and space to be sad. You know, faith is not frownless. Maturity is not painless. 
Having times when you are so burdened, not put together, you're not okay. Those seasons will come. And sometimes we have the impression that if someone is strong in faith, that they won't be sad. But our world is too broken. Let's remember where we live. We're not exempt from the brokenness of this world because we're believers. Nancy Guthrie, one Christian author, she says, faith does not make hurt hurt less. It can give you hope, but it doesn't make the loss hurtless. And we can even think that there should be like a time limit on these tears, and we think, you know, what's, what's wrong with me at a certain point? Maybe the loss, maybe the loss that you're experiencing is worth many tears. Many, many tears. And you see that in Ecclesiastes, that being sad about sad things is wise. You know, Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it's better to go to a house of mourning, like a funeral, than it is to go to a, a, a celebration, like a wedding. Because you learn a lot more, and you take it to heart when you go to sad things. And what I'm learning is that every loss in life, it's not just the most dramatic, extreme losses of life, but every loss in life demands an appropriate season of sadness or grieving. Seasons where you feel like you're just going down one step at a time, deeper and deeper into the sadness. And there are seasons where it's only when you're at the bottom that you'll meet God. We have, like I mentioned earlier, this internal sense that life was meant to be much more than this, don't we? We see that in Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the world. But the fall of man in Genesis 3 has happened, and it now leads to grief, death is experienced, sorrow, everything. Everything seems to just fall so short of God's original design. And when there's loss, there's grief. Whether we have lost hope for the future or something we cherish about the present, it slips away. And we should grieve. Every loss in life demands an appropriate season of grieving. And so often, I read this quote where it was talking about pastoral ministry, but I think it's true of just life. Ministry is a series of ungrieved losses. And I think that's true of life because we can easily experience a loss, move on, rationalize it, or we just get back to work. And in doing so, we cheat the grieving process. Or maybe we didn't deal with the brokenness of the past or the present. It's easy to want to just kill the pain of loss instead of confronting it with the presence of Christ. We can fall into anger, or we can fall into denial, where everything's fine. We can avoid it, or we can minimize it. And I think even in our good intention, we may even rationalize it saying, you know, I, what I'm going through isn't as bad as that person, so I don't really have a right to be sad. I think that's a really hurtful idea. 
you know, we sort of compare our, our struggles to other people's struggles throughout history or our parents, and you know, it's not as bad. And so, therefore, I guess I can't really, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be sad about this. I just gotta move on. I've heard worse. And we think we don't have the right to grieve because we've seen worse. But I would argue that for a lot of the things that we go through, it's not only right to grieve, we're called to grieve. Especially when we see the damage that sin does. I don't think we should be happy. I think we should grieve the impact and damage of sin. I think we should hate sin. Grieve what sin does to our church. We need to take that seriously. We grieve the continuing effects of sin. Sin that killed our best friend on the cross. How can we take that so lightly? And I think as we grieve, we let ourselves grieve, we represent the heart of God and it's his empowering grace that can get us through. And I think grief, while good, can also paralyze us instead of motivate us. It can cause us to want to quit instead of persevere. It can cause us to become angry or cold rather than soft and have your hearts enlarged. But there's going to come times where you're going to ask yourself, what's it going to take to get through this, to come out? It feels like I'm never going to have happiness again. Is it possible to just, it just feels like forever. Today, it feels like forever. And it comes in waves, and we need God's sustaining grace. I'm thankful that there are passages like Romans 8.26 that just says, I don't know what to pray. And there are times where our silence trumps our words. And passages like Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I'm thankful that scripture doesn't avoid this type of language, the language of sorrow and grief. And oftentimes, we don't know how to express ourselves. And so the only thing we could do is use metaphors. We know what it's like when the only thing I could say is it just feels like I'm in darkness. Like there's this big weight on my shoulders. You see that language throughout scripture in Psalm 88. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Psalm 69, 15, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow up me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Again and again, the Bible uses metaphors to aid us in our sorrows. Charles Spurgeon, who's a very famous preacher who throughout his life struggled through depression, he used sermon titles like, 
the frail leaf from Job 12, the wounded spirit from Proverbs 18, the fainting soul from Psalm 42, the bruised reed from Isaiah 42, the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. And the purpose of all these metaphors and expressing yourself through metaphor is to help us move from our pain to promise. But that's a very, very slow process, and it's what the Bible calls lament. Prayers of lament or grief. One author, Mark, Mark Rogop, he says, Lament is how we bring our sorrow to God. Without lament, we don't know how to process pain, silence, bitterness, and even anger can dominate our spiritual lives instead. Without lament, we won't know how to help people walk through the sorrow. Instead, we'll offer trite solutions, unhelpful comments, or impatient responses. What's more, without this sacred song of sorrow, we'll miss the lessons historic laments are intended to teach us. Lament is how Christians grieve. And uh, it's amazing to me when I read this, I was like, a third of the book of Psalms is lament. And lament gives us permission to wrestle with sorrow even wrestle with God in honesty and humility. Psalm 77, verse 2 says, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my soul, my spirit faints. And it's this honest cry of a hurting heart that wrestles with the paradox of pain and yet is trying to fight for faith in the promises of God. It's loaded with theology. It's rooted in belief. But between pain and promise, sometimes it's hard for us to navigate that. And you see throughout Scripture questions like, will the Lord spurn us forever? Will he never again be favorable? Will his steadfast love cease? Are his promises at an end? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger, shut up his compassion. And the psalmist expresses this, and I don't think it's because he actually believes these things to be true, that God is not loving, God is unfaithful. But something here that's important is that the psalmist constantly is recognizing that pain and suffering often creates difficult emotions that are not based upon truth, but they feel true. And one of the dangers when you're in suffering is for us to stop trying, to stop talking, to stop speaking to God about pain. We think prayer hasn't worked. It's only disappointed us. We're frustrated. And that silence can kill our souls. It's more biblical when you go to God and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Psalm 22.1. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 10.1. And these complaints in the Bible are not simple because they are still offered in humility. I don't think there's ever a place in Scripture where it's okay for us in bitterness to be angry with God, but I do think it's beneficial and permissible to ask pain-filled questions, not feeling like we're owed something by God, but turning to Him, complaining to Him, asking Him, trusting Him. Seeking him. 
for Charles Spurgeon, it was, it was partly because the language of God, what helped him get through his depression was because the language of God revealed a God who understands us. God gave us a language for sorrow. And in Isaiah 53.3, it's because he is described, Jesus is described as the man of sorrows. Jesus is the man of sorrows. Jesus is our fellow sufferer. And I think there will come times where we'll just draw near to God and we'll just pray to him and say, God, draw near to us, come close to us, the brokenhearted. You were overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death in Matthew 22. You know what it's like, God, to have a lump in your throat, to have anxious knots, the loneliness of grief, the heaviness in your chest, sick feeling in your stomach. You understand sorrow and abandonment and betrayal. You are alone. You know the loneliness of grief. You looked up at the lowest moment of your life and you saw your friends leaving you and the spirit was the only one that was filling him up during that time. And Hebrews 2.18 says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And I don't think, again, this takes away the suffering. But Spurgeon says in his depression, he said, how completely it does help take away the bitterness out of grief to know that it once was suffered by him. It helps when you're suffering to know that there is someone who has walked in your shoes. And if there's any realistic hope and joy that we have as Christians during those times, it has to be something where we are just saturated with who Jesus is. Where if you suffer, you have an ally, you have a hero, you have a companion, you have a redeemer, you have an advocate. It's not always the most helpful for me it should be, it should be, but it's not always the most helpful for me when I can only, like, I should say this carefully. If someone were to just say, like, hey, you got to think of the second coming. Hey, heaven won't be like this. And that is definitely a biblical motivation. But sometimes I think it's more helpful where we don't look to the second coming of Christ but we also look to the first coming where he was a man who was weary, where many times it says his soul was troubled. In the garden, he had sorrow to the point of death. That the sorrowful have a savior. that God so loved the world that he sent a man of sorrows to a crying world to those who were in darkness. 
that John 11.35, Jesus wept. He was not distant from us. In John chapter 12, verse 27 through 28, now is my soul troubled. And the same Heavenly Father who picked him up will pick up his children today. He held Christ and he will hold you too. He knows your pain. He knows when your faith is weak. He knows when you cannot make it alone. Today is not always. And I think when you see Jesus, you don't need to try to hold it all together, but we can crawl and cling and hold on to him because he is there at the bottom. And it's not the strength of our faith. It's the strength of our, the object of our faith. My faith will may be very weak, just weak enough to try to cling to him. But he is strong. The object of our faith is strong. He is near to the brokenhearted, to the crushed spirit. He has revealed himself to be a man of sorrows. And so we want to cling to him just saying, God, give us the strength to pursue you. And we feel hurt. And we need you, God, to be healing us. He is our faith. Jesus is my joy. Jesus is our light. Jesus is our savior. And Jesus is our hope. Let's pray. We're going to have a couple of praise songs. We're going to sing. And then if you, uh, if you haven't heard, if you're new here, we don't usually do this, but we're going to have an extended time of prayer um, individually as well as if uh, at a time, maybe if you need someone to pray for you, we'll have that as well. But we want to just take some time to sing, to come before the Lord. And then um, a couple people uh, will come up and lead us into a time of prayer. Um, and wherever you're at maybe you're in a good season and just pray pray to know the Lord more or it's a really difficult season just I hope in a, in a way that's consistent with the laments, we will turn, we will complain, we will ask, we'll seek, and we'll fight to trust.
So let's just take some time to, as we sing and we pray, to just come before the Lord, to seek Him, especially for our church. Father, you are near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. We are brokenhearted and we are seeking after you. We need to be saved. And you've revealed yourself in this way, and so we're asking you to be all that you have promised to be. We're asking you to make your truths real to us. Help us, God, in our weakness, in our prayers, maybe even in our silence. May you be our strength, be our God. And may your grace be sufficient for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.